I'll be reading this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 12. For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by the one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. And I'll pray. God, again, just am grateful for um, just this privilege we have to gather together in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the ministry of your Spirit through your Word to teach us and to always lead us only into the truth. We pray again that we would hear you and we respond in faith and obedience, God, to all that you put on our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, if you um, are just visiting with us or haven't been here for very long, we've been um, working through the statement of faith for Bernie Bible Church. And Bernie Bible Church is an evangelical free church, which is a denomination um, um, that started um, through Swedish immigrants um, coming here to the United States. And toward the end of this series, I'll talk a little more about the E-Free Church as a denomination. But we are on Article 8, 9, and 10 of our Statement of Faith, which is um, the three articles that um, deal with the church and what the nature of the church is. This ought to be something that is um, simple and easy to understand, um, just like what, one, what a woman is. But unfortunately, there are people today that don't know how to define woman, and, and there are folks that don't know how to define church. So this statement, this um, eighth article says, We believe that the true church is composed of all such persons who through saving faith in Jesus Christ have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit and are united together in the body of Christ of which He is the head. So we believe that the true church, and as you can just, we're just going to break this down as I've been doing phrase by phrase. We make sure we understand what it is that we believe. There are false churches. The word church can and is used by cults, and even Satanists use it. You can Google um, Satan church or the Sat- or church of, of Satan. And um, there's different things that come up. And so we need to be discerning. Just because a group of people call themselves a church doesn't mean that it is the true church. Church, in our statement of faith in this first part here, is capitalized. And that is because it is a reference to the universal church, the church of Jesus Christ worldwide. All saved people. From the time of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 to the time of the rapture, whenever that will be, all folks that have been saved since the day of Pentecost to when the rapture of the church takes place are part of the church of Jesus Christ. The Catholic um, church uses the word Catholic as a synonym for the word universal. 
And so obviously we don't put that in our statement of faith because there's confusion there. What is Catholic? And if we were to put that as Protestants in our statement of faith, that we believe that the true church is composed of all persons, then we would say, we could say we believe that the true church is a Catholic church, meaning that it's universal. So it used to be that the Catholic church, they traditionally taught and believed that they were the only true church on the earth because they were the whole church, which was a bit grandiose on their part. And so they no longer teach that, that they are the only true church. They acknowledge that other churches are also true churches. Unfortunately, they have not changed their name because Catholic still means the universal church. So by church, true church, we mean all those, again, who everywhere, all over the world, from the time of Pentecost to the time of the rapture, those people who have placed their faith in Christ for salvation. is composed of all persons. What we mean here is that there are no exclusions in the church of Christ. No one is excluded. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So Jesus takes no account of skin pigmentation, takes no account of male or female, takes no account of economic status. If you've placed your faith in Christ, you are one. You are one with Christ and with all others who have placed their faith in Christ. The church is people. It is not facilities, buildings. It is not programs. It is not purpose statements. Before there was ever a statement of faith, there was a church. So it's not the statement of faith that makes a church. It is your faith in Christ which makes you part of the church. This building, if it were to be burned down, torn down, confiscated, it would not affect the church because this is not the church, this structure. We are the church. So we believe that the true church is composed of all persons and then next, who through saving faith in Jesus Christ have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Not all faith is saving faith. Saving faith is faith alone in Christ alone. Saving faith is faith apart from works of any kind. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace have we been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves, it is the work of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. So we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. Sometimes, um, we understand we can, we can be, um, um, cut some slack a bit, but sometimes it's unfortunate when we share our testimonies, we can give the impression that we are sure that we are saved because we remember a prayer that we said when we were a child. Or we can remember holding our hands up during an evangelistic service or walking it to the front, or if you were in summer camp, that you took a stick and threw it into the fire. Those are all good things, but none of those things save you. Jesus saves. Jesus alone saves, and he saves in response to faith alone. 
It's not my prayers that save me. It's not confession that saves me. It's not commitment that saves me. Jesus saves me. Saving faith is not some kind of super spiritual faith. It's ordinary faith. We all exercise faith thousands of times every day. Before you sat down, you didn't test it out. You just sat down. You exercised faith that that chair would be able to hold you up. When you drive down the street, you're exercising faith that somebody doesn't plow into you or that your car doesn't break down. Saving faith is not some kind of spiritual faith. It is ordinary faith. What makes it saving is its object. It is in Jesus. Saving faith is distinguished only by its object, not by its quality or by its size. Faith does not save. We do not have faith in faith. We have faith in Christ who saves. He is the Son of God. He is fully God who became man. He lived sinlessly. He died for our sins. He rose from the dead. He is the only Savior and only He saves. It's interesting that in John's Gospel, John didn't want us to just to get, seems tied down to just one word. And so he used a lot of synonyms for faith. He said, receiving him. He said, come and drink, come and eat, enter like a sheep enters in through the gate. And even just the word come, receive, drink, enter, come. There are so many different synonyms for faith. The idea in all of it would seem to be that faith is being persuaded that something is true and then reliance upon another. You're not relying upon yourself. You're not relying upon the church. You're not relying upon people. Your reliance is upon Jesus alone. Ian Thomas said in one of his books, faith is the disposition that invokes the activity of another. I love that simple def definition. This is what Mary did. I've, I've referenced it many times. Uh, Francis Schaeffer used her as an example of what faith looks like. When she just simply said, Behold, the bondservant of the Lord, be it done unto me according to your word. The disposition that invokes the activity of another. Who through saving faith in Jesus Christ have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Saving faith precedes regeneration. We first believe and then we are saved. Regeneration means to be born again. It is new birth. According to our statement, as it is written here, all men can believe. There is nothing in the Bible that says that people who are not saved cannot believe. Calvinism teaches that the spiritually dead cannot believe. They cannot respond to God or seek God. That is not in agreement with what this statement of faith would say. The problem I have with, with that Calvinist teaching um, a number of problems with it, but one is that it just, to me, does not square not only with the clear statements of Scripture, but with the clear examples of Scripture, of spiritually dead people who are responding to God and who exercise faith before they are saved. 
One example of a spiritually dead person who was responding to God was Adam. After he sinned, at that moment, he became spiritually dead. And yet he was still talking with God. He was aware of his sin, aware that he was separated from God, grieved over what he had done, and interacting with God there in the garden as a spiritually dead man. Nicodemus, who was not saved, and Jesus was telling him, you need to be saved, you need to be born again. And yet he was seeking Jesus because he knew that his condition was not what it should be. Cornelius, another unsaved man, we know this because of Peter's testimony after Peter was used of God to introduce him to, to Christ, that even as Peter was preaching, this dead man spiritually believed and was saved. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. It's very clear in that verse that faith precedes life. We have our second year students read a small book on um, what the five points of Calvinism are. First five chapters are describing those five points and the next five chapters are responding to those five points. And the author um, by the name of Bryson, quoting him, he says, according to Calvinism, the unregenerate man cannot receive Christ as Lord and Savior and cannot believe in Christ or believe the gospel preached to him as an unregenerate man. He cannot do anything to accept the free gift of eternal life offered to him and thereby saved, be saved. He can't accept it. Regeneration before faith has become the distinctive of a Calvinist definition of total depravity. And then to substantiate that point, he quotes from a Calvinist theologian, Alan um, Killen, who says, Reformed theologians place regeneration before faith, pointing out that the Holy Spirit must bring new life before the sinner can, by God's enabling grace, exercise faith and accept Jesus Christ. And if that's not clear enough, R.C. Sproul says, A cardinal point of Reformed theology is the maxim, regeneration precedes faith. Now that means that a person moves from death to life without first placing his faith in Christ. You're spiritually dead and you have to become alive spiritually before you place your faith in Christ because you can't believe while you are dead. Another Reformed theologian says, well, let's apply that to the status of children. And he says, independent of age, regeneration, new birth, can take place in the smallest of infants. We, believe, we may even take for granted that in the sphere of the covenant of God, He usually regenerates His elect children from infancy. This may be things you've never heard before or thought about, but it's really very, um, it's out there. It's very well and clear stated. Years ago um, at His Hill, I had a guest speaker said to me, why do you call yourself a moderate Calvinist? 
And I said, well, because I don't believe in limited atonement. I believe that Jesus died for all the world and not for some. And he goes, okay, I, I understand that. He says, but which comes first, faith or regeneration? And I said, well, faith comes first. You believe and you're saved. And he goes, stop calling yourself a Calvinist. And I said, what? And so that was 20 years ago. Since that time, I've done a fair amount of study on this subject. And I've come to see that just as R.C. Sproul says, a cardinal point of Reformed theology is the maxim, regeneration precedes faith. I can't agree to that. The church doctrinal statement here at Bernie Bible Church does not agree with that. That doesn't mean that you can't be part of this fellowship and disagree. Again, this, is not, this does not determine your salvation. But this is what, what, where this church is on this position. Is that you believe and then you are saved. John 20, 31 says, These things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. Believing and you have life. Acts 16, 31. And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. 1 John 5, 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Now, one of the reasons that I'm kind of slowing down on this point, not only is it because it's very much emphasized in this article, but you may not know, I'd be surprised if you did, that the E-Free Church doctrinal statement has changed um, substantially in the last 10 to 15 years, 20 years maybe. And so the E-Free Church doctrinal statement that you're seeing up here on the screen and which I've been working through is the, what I like to call the original E-Free Church doctrinal statement. It's the old one. And so if, if you have a history of growing up in an E-Free Church, Wayside Chapel maybe in San Antonio or different um, whatever church, this is the one that we're still using. We haven't amended ours to update it, which is permissible according to the denomination. They've, they've told all the local churches, you do not have to go by the updated um, statement of faith. So the, the updated statement of faith says this, only through God's saving work in Jesus Christ can we be rescued, reconciled, and renewed. No statement of faith. I mean, no mention of faith in that statement. Only through God's saving work in Jesus Christ can we be rescued, reconciled, and renewed. Apparently faith is not necessary to be rescued, reconciled, and renewed. Because faith is not even mentioned. And then on the statement concerning the Holy Spirit. The current Ephraim um, doctrinal statement says, He convicts the world of its guilt. He regenerates sinners. Not a word about faith. It's not until we get to the statement on the church that the current E-Free Church statement says, um, we believe that the true church comprises all who have been justified by God's grace through faith alone in Christ alone. So that's the first time faith is mentioned. And there, the way that it's written, justified by grace through faith alone, in my mind, faith precedes justification. But the reason that this was all doctored up and changed is because over the years, the, 
the Free Church Seminary, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, has had at least one very prominent um, Calvinist on their faculty, D.A. Carson. Good man, godly man. But he is a five-point Calvinist. And through his influence and others that have come to the seminary, many of the pastors or the, of the seminary graduates are graduating as five-point Calvinists. And they go straight into E-free churches, not believing the doctrinal statement which we are going through this morning. And so, but they went into these churches anyway, and over time there are so many of them that when we've had our E-free church conventions, that they have voted to change the doctrinal statement so it no longer says what we're going through this morning. And so that's why these changes. And, and again, this does not determine whether you are saved or not. But it, it troubles me, again, when if men who didn't agree with the doctrinal statement to begin with took those pastorates and then started changing what was going on in the churches. That, that troubles me. I feel like that there should be integrity enough just to say up front, I don't agree with that doctrinal statement. It's not a good fit for me to be pastor. But that's the, where we are today in the free church. So we believe that the church is composed of all persons who through saving faith in Jesus Christ have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit and are united together in the body of Christ. Unity is the work of God in response to faith in Christ. God places the believer into the body of Christ and makes him one with Christ and all other believers. That's why I read from 1 Corinthians 12 this morning because it speaks about the body and how the many members are one body. That is the work of God. In Ephesians 2.14 we're told, He Himself is our peace who made both groups into one that he might make the two into one new man. And then in Ephesians 4, 4, there is one body. So it is God who makes us one. It is God who places the believer into the body of Christ and makes him one with Christ and with all other believers. Doctrinal agreement, moral purity, are obviously essential for maintaining fellowship and maintaining unity. But it is God that makes us one. We maintain unity, but we don't make ourselves one. Just like a marriage. When two people get married, one of the last things that's said in that wedding service is that God has joined these two together. What God has joined together, let no man separate. Marriage is two, God making two one. But that marriage couple better be diligent about maintaining the unity. Whatever you believe, whatever we believe about the order between faith and regeneration, which comes first, if you've placed your faith alone in Christ for salvation, you are, are one with all those who are saved. This point that we've just been going through does not make you saved. He is the head. Of which he is the head. Colossians 1.18 says he is the head of the body, the church. The leader, the authority of the church is Jesus Christ, no one else. Not men. Elders have responsibility. 1 Thessalonians 5.12 says um, to, that you are to 
to respect those who have charge over you in the Lord. So there is responsibility that elders, leaders of a church have, but they are not substitutes for Christ. And this is something that Martin Luther was one of the reasons that got him so fired up. He came to faith in Christ, genuinely got saved, and he was reading his Bible and looking at the Catholic Church, and he goes, we've made priests to be substitutes for God. And he says there is direct access to God. You do not have to go through a pastor, an elder, or a preacher to come to God. You have direct access to Him. He is your head. We should beware of those who exceed their authority. It is spiritual abuse when church leaderships act like they are God. It is a usurpation of Christ and His authority, and it is serious business. Jesus is to be literally in charge of the church and of individual believers. It is His church, not ours. When Jesus is not in charge of the church, then you have to say, well, then who is? And the only answer to that is men. And when men become the head of the church rather than Jesus Christ, that church is no longer functioning as the body of Christ. It is like a severed limb. It may be wiggling, it may be moving like cutting a tail off a lizard, but it is dead. It is separate from the head. This is serious business. In 1 Corinthians 3.3, you might just turn there. 1 Corinthians 3.3, it talks about the local church and how it is um, the temple of God. He says... In verse 10, 1 Corinthians 3, beginning in verse 10, According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building upon it. But let each man be careful how he builds upon it. The foundation, he, let, he started a church. All the things he's going to say in this passage are true individually, but he's not speaking individually to Christians. He's talking about corporate Christians, the local church. He built a church. He laid a foundation. People got saved. A church was formed. Be careful how you build the church. That's the, the focus here. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, let each man's, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it will be revealed by, with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built upon it remains, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire. And now verse 16. Do you not know that you, and the you is plural, you all are a temple of God? So this is where we know he's talking about the local church. Chapter 6, he's going to say, you are, each of you, a temple of God. That's not his point in chapter 3. You all are one temple. You are the temple of God. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? So the Spirit dwells in the church, the local church. If any man destroys the temple of God, in other words, if any man destroys the local church, serious business, God will destroy him. For, that, for, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. How do you destroy the temple of God? How do you destroy a local church? Cut it off from its head. 
when Jesus is no longer the living, active head of the church, and it becomes nothing more than another social organization, and we have our business meetings and we're just giving lip service to Jesus. Beware those who are responsible for that. When a church becomes all about programs, all becomes, becomes about ways to, to make it successful, ways to increase its membership, ways to get more money coming in, ways to get more whatever, recognition in the community, even ways to make it more influential. Where is any of that in the Bible? Jesus is the head of the church. It is his body, and the church exists because of him and should be the only reason why it continues to exist is because of Jesus. And when the church is dependent upon programs and fundraising and all these other things, it's not dependent on Jesus. We have to have new programs in order to keep it going. We have to have better facilities. There, there is nothing in Scripture that would say that is what keeps the church going. The church exists because of Jesus. God brought it into existence, and God is more than sufficient to sustain it. And so whenever individuals in the church, the leadership of the church, or others in the church, they just suddenly move it away, and all of a sudden we become just another humanitarian agency. God says the church has been destroyed. That local church is no longer functioning as a body of Christ in response to Him. And that those individuals, God will destroy. What does that mean, God will destroy them? Paul didn't say. It's kind of like when mom and dad said, you don't know want to know what I will do. <laughs> Sometimes you just need to have the fear of God in you. And if nothing else, this is meant to put the fear of God in us. We believe that the true church is composed of all such persons who through saving faith in Jesus Christ have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit and are united together in the body of Christ of which He is the head. Pretty straightforward. Article 9, we'll just go ahead and move on a little bit this morning. Again pertains to the church. We believe that only those who are thus members of the true church shall be eligible for membership in the local church. Membership in the body of Christ is accomplished by God at the moment of salvation. Membership in the local church is assumed in the New Testament. There is no mention in the New Testament of joining a church. It would have been, Paul's going, what do you mean join the local church? If you are if you are saved, then you are part of the body of Christ, the universal body of Christ. And if you're part of the universal body of Christ, you are part of the local church. Now today, because we have so many local churches, it used to be there was just one church per city, and they maybe met in a lot of different homes, but it was still considered one church. But we have lots of churches today. And so people hop around, and, and they choose this church over that church. I understand. But there was nothing like that in the New Testament. You did not join a church. You became a Christian, and it was assumed that you understood you were part of the body of Christ. Why then 
do we join churches today? Why do we have membership? This, this article says eligible for membership in the local church. It's about accountability. Really, that's, that's about all you can say. There is, there is no mention of membership in the New Testament, no mention of joining a church. But we also live in a time when people are just not very accountable and, unless there's, there's something like membership where there's an expressed expectation that this is where I fellowship. We will, at Bernie Bible Church, we will support everybody, pray for everybody, hold accountable everybody. If, we, if you consider this your church home and we consider this your church home, it doesn't matter whether you've joined the church or not. We're going to treat you like family because you're a brother, you're a sister in Christ. And so we'll, we'll seek to encourage you, bless you, support you in any way that we can. And if there's a need to, to um, confront you about something, then we trust that we'll step up and do that as well. None of that's dependent upon whether you're on the church rolls as a member or not. But the problem is when a person does not see himself as a member he is sometimes less likely to participate in the life of the church and less likely to respond to the correction of the church. And when correction starts to come, some people will just run. They say, who are you? You have no right to speak into my life. It's unfortunate. It's not true. Membership or not, we're family. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And families have a right to speak to each other. But we don't get that. Maybe it's because our own, the family situation here in our country is so broken down that we don't understand the significance of family. I don't know. But membership just is a help to understanding that there is a connection and there is a mutual responsibility. Being saved is, is the necessary prerequisite um, to joining this church, according to our doctrinal statement. And so, really, the main thing we do, if you do want to join this church, it's not a big, um, complicated process, we want to hear your testimony. And so, what we've asked now, and this is a little different than what we used to do, we used to just sit down in the back room and just, you share your testimony. But we find, have found it that it's, it's helpful to, to hear your testimony before you sit down with us, and so we're asking folks now, if you want to join the church Write out your testimony and give it to one of the elders, and we'll make sure all the elder, other elders get it. And then after church some Sunday, we'll, we'll plan a time. We'll sit in the back, and we'll just, we'll just talk and, and answer any questions that you have. We also want you to read the statement of faith and, and see if there's any things that you, that you have questions about or whatever. But basically, it's just the main thing is we just want to hear that you know the Lord, that you've placed your faith in Christ for salvation, and you're trusting in Him alone. With membership comes an expectation of commitment and participation. We don't check roll. I remember as a kid, we went to a church, my family, and they, they passed a, a clipboard down the road <laughs> every Sunday, and you, know, and you checked off you know, that you were there, basically. And um, wow, I mean, it, it was just like being at school, I guess. But... We don't do that. Um, you know, I, it's just, yeah, that's not, not a concern. 
But we just want you to, to connect. We want you to want to connect. Um, and, and we want you to feel a, a part of this body. Membership is not that important to us. But it just psychologically, it just often says something. To, this, is, this is it. This is where I connect. This is my home. Membership is an outward expression of being under Christ's authority and headship. Jesus is my head, but I won't submit to you. There's a problem there, right? And then we've, we occasionally, we've, we've heard statements like that as elders, that Jesus is my head, but you, are, you have no authority whatsoever over me. That's not right. Yes, Jesus is our head, and this church is not a substitute for Christ. But we need each other. And the elders do have, have charge, responsibility for your soul. And so there needs to be a reciprocal understanding there. And, and it's not right. It's not, it doesn't reflect the body. It's like, it's like this is the whole reason for 1 Corinthians 12. It's like a member of the body is saying, I don't need you and I don't need to submit to you. Really? What member of the body in our physical body does not submit to all the other? I mean, it's just, yes, the, the, the head is the head. But all the members are functioning together as one. The organic union of the body of Christ, we need each other. We hurt for each other. We rejoice with each other because we are a body. And when there is separation, it hurts. Membership is not about money. Um, I love it that this church made the decision many years ago to not pass an offering plate. And there have been people that have been here for, I don't know, maybe a year sometimes, and they have no idea. <laughs> where, where do you take up money? There's a box in the back if you care to know. Um, membership is nothing about how to get money. It, it's, it's just perish the thought. We want people, we do not want people to join for their money. In fact, we would rather you not give if you think that at any time we are pushing membership so that we can somehow pressure people to give. That's never going to happen in this church. We don't even push membership, really, but we think it, we do believe in it. We think it's a good thing in the sense only that it it helps to cause us to see our mutual need for each other, that we are committed to each other. Article 10 says, We believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord and head of the church, and that every local church has the right under Christ to decide and govern its own affairs. Christ is the sole authority of the church. The local church is not in the New Testament called the body. It is called, or I'm sorry, it's not called, um, it, it, it's not called a part of Jesus. It is called the body. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians of all churches, so this is very instructive because they were a mess, and both in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Paul addresses them as the church of Jesus Christ. And so he's elevating the local church by doing that. 
universally, we are the body of Christ. And so you think, well, if universal, that's the body of Christ, then the local church is not the body of Christ. It's a part of the body of Christ. But that's not what's described. What's described in the New Testament that the local church is the body of Christ. And so that elevates the significance of each local church. The local church um, is obviously important. And the head of the local church is Jesus. No other authority. We are, as an evangelical free church, part of a denomination, as I've said. But one of the things I like about this denomination is that it recognizes the local authority of every church. And so it's not trying to tell the churches what to do. There's no governing body that's legislating for everybody else. Each church is independent. This also means that government is not the head of the local church. We've been through a difficult time. Now I've come out of it and our memories are short and maybe we're already forgetting what our government was doing um, to the gathering of Christians. And so I want to just remind you of what happened and what could very easily happen again on short notice, if no notice, by reading just some statements of of, um, Grace Community Church and how what they wrote out in response to what was happening during COVID. And I appreciate these things. I'm not going to quote it all, but some of it. Christ is Lord of all. He is the one true head of the church. He is also King of Kings, sovereign over every earthly authority. Grace Community Church has always stood immovably on those biblical principles. As His people, we are subject to His will and commands as revealed in Scripture. Therefore, we cannot and will not acquiesce to a government-imposed moratorium on our weekly congregational worship or other regular corporate gatherings. Compliance would be disobedient to our Lord's clear commands. It has never been the prerogative of civil government to order, modify, forbid, or mandate worship. When, how, and how often the the church worships is not subject to Caesar. And because Christ is the head of the church, ecclesiastical matters pertain to His kingdom, not Caesar's. As pastors and elders, we cannot hand over to earthly authorities any privilege or power that belongs solely to Christ as head of His church. Pastors and elders have no duty to follow follow orders from a civil government attempting to regulate the worship of governance of the church. In fact, pastors who cede their Christ-delegated authority in the church to a civil ruler have abdicated their responsibility before their Lord and violated the God-ordained spheres of authority as much as the secular official who illegitimately imposes his authority upon the church." As the church, we do not need the state's permission to serve and worship our Lord as He commanded. The church is Christ's precious bride. She belongs to Him alone. She exists by His will and serves under His authority. He will tolerate no assault on her purity and no infringement of His headship over her. The honor that we rightly owe our earthly governors and magistrates does not include compliance when such officials attempt to subvert sound doctrine, corrupt biblical morality, 
exercise ecclesiastical authority or supplant Christ as head of the church in any other way. The biblical order is clear. Christ is Lord over Caesar, not vice versa. Christ, not Caesar, is head of the church. Freedom of worship is a command of God, not a privilege granted by the state. So a discerning church cannot passively or automatically comply if the government orders a shutdown of congregational meetings, even if the reason given is concern for public health and safety. No earthly state has a right to restrict, delimit, or forbid the assembling of believers. We have always supported the underground church in nations where Christian congregational worship is deemed illegal by the state. Although we in America may be accustomed to government intrusion into the church, may not be accustomed, may be unaccustomed to the government intrusion in the church of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is by no means the first time in church history that Christians have had to deal with government overreach or hostile rulers. As a matter of fact, persecution of the church by government authorities has been the norm, not the exception throughout church history. Indeed, Scripture says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Historically, the two main persecutors have always been secular government and false religion. Christ is the true head of His church, and we intend to honor that vital truth in all of our gatherings. For that preeminent reason, we cannot accept and will not bow to the intrusive restrictions government officials now want to impose on our congregation. We offer this response without rancor and not out of hearts that are combative or rebellious, but with a sobering awareness that we must answer to the Lord Jesus Christ for the stewardship He has given to us as shepherds of His flock. To government officials, we respectfully say with the apostles, whether it is, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge." And our unhesitating reply to that question is the same as the apostles. We must obey God rather than men. So I really appreciate the clarity of that statement. And I'm glad you do as well. This is what we are saying. We may not understood it even when the people who formed this statement of faith wrote it. They may never have envisioned a day where here, here in the United States when we say Christ is the sole authority of the local church, they may have just been thinking denominationally. But I'm not so sure. Because again, this denomination came out of Sweden. And the reason it's called the free church, the evangelical free church, is because they were not under the state government. And one of the reasons they left Sweden is because of the opposition that they were receiving from the Swedish government at that time. Which tells me that when this statement of faith was written, they probably did think of how the state has historically tried to, to interfere with the affairs of the church. Has no right, no right to do so. Jesus is the head. And the church will destroy, the, the government will destroy the church if it can. The church is a wonderful entity, it is the very bride of Christ. He loves it with all of his being. He died to form a church. We should love it as well. One thing that strikes me year after year in reading the Corinthian, to study, uh, teaching Corinthians, and we're just wrapping it up at his hill again. Paul loved that church. Spent a year and 18 months there 
Only Ephesus did he spend longer at. Fully committed to these people. And they were a mess. And they attacked him viciously. They accused him of all manner of things that he was not guilty of. They slandered him. He never took a dime of their money because he, some, I think he just was perceptive enough with this church. He understood, if I ever take any money from them, they will use it against me the rest of my life. And Paul never took a dime from them. And despite all their viciousness, they were suing each other, all kinds of immorality going on in the church. But Paul started his letter to the Corinthians by saying, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That convicts me. Our students are going to be um, fleeing his hill soon. <laughs> and one of the most difficult things they're going to face when they go home is finding a, quote, good church. And I know it's hard. But I would just so encourage them, don't ever become negative about the bride of Christ. The head, the groom, loves his bride. He loves his body. With all of our faults and failures and messes up, he is fully committed to us. And we should be fully committed to his body because we are committed to him. I'll close this in prayer. God, I do thank you again for your mercies toward us. When we were hostile, alienated, dead in our trespasses and sins, that you united us, made us one, God, with you and with every other believer on this planet. You've taken away the barrier, the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, but most especially the barrier, the dividing wall of sin between us and you. You've made us one. You identify with us, God, where if a person persecutes us, they are persecuting you. Thank you, God, for seeing us as yourself, your very body. I pray, Lord, that we would love what you love, and that is your body, and that we would recognize this precious entity that you've created and how indispensable the members are to one another. This is your design. We need each other. And what a gift and privilege and joy it is to come together in the name of Jesus. What a blessing. So much anger and division, hostility in this world. And this is the place we come and know the peace of God. Thank you, Jesus. In his name, amen.